welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor at large for Sports Pro and joining me once again, Sports Pro Print Editor Mike Long. Hi Mike. Hi Owen. How are you Mike and how has your sports industry week been? I am very well, thank you very much. And I've had a lovely, uh, what is it now, three weeks into the year, lovely third sports industry week of the year of 2019. Been down in London, working hard on the magazine. Next issue for our listeners out there, due out early next month, issue 104. Looking at the future of the sports industry, which is, you know, hot topic as always. We're always looking ahead, aren't we? We are, apart from the times when we're doing like retrospectives and look backs on the year and yeah, that's true. Stuff. Apart from our last issue, which was uh, a lot of looking back. But now, yeah. you know, new year, new beginnings and all that. Yeah. So, Ed, how yeah. about yourself, Owen? Where were you? I I spent some of the week in London. When you were in London, Mike, I was not in London. I was in Berlin for the launch of the League of Legends European Championship. That was part of the um, the Champion Series, and that's now kind of the European-specific bit has been rebranded as the European Championship. Uh, and then new season started on Friday and they were telling me, first of all, what they're doing generally, um, showing me behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff and uh, telling me a bit about the rebrand and their plans for 2019. And so, how, was it? You know, how, was, how was your first esports? Is it your first esports? Experience? Not, not quite. It was it was my fullest, I would say, esports experience. I mean, they have built a bespoke studio uh, in a, a huge kind of broadcast lot out in the I think in the southeast of Berlin uh, near some some grown-up TV companies Um, and you know I got to pick some people's brains on what they're doing and how the kind of esports offering is evolving how League of Legends is working on stuff like host city strategies and different approaches to, to branding and sponsorship and that kind of thing and then of course you know most pertinent for our audience um, how this relates to the sports industry, what kind of sports industry investors are getting out of being in that esports space, comparisons between the two, um, how things like content and delivery and so on are going to converge between those two worlds. So, yeah, you should see some stuff potentially on the site in the next few days, but certainly a fuller feature in that issue 104 of the magazine, Mike. And how did you find the experience, Owen? I will be honest and say that I didn't really know what was going on in the League of Legends action itself. Mm. League of Legends, for those who are uninitiated, it's a 10-year-old, I think it's called multiplayer online battle arena game. Um, Basically, it's all strategy and then fighting. Little bits of strategy, bits of collecting and gathering and then short bits of fighting and it moves slow slow quick and the people who were watching it there were about 200 people in the in the studio fans watching it and they certainly seemed a lot more knowledgeable than I did but what I was very impressed with was the media operation uh production values all of that kind of thing I think Mm -hmm. it's um yeah it's it's obviously a fairly mature property in those respects given that this is geared towards obviously the hardcore hardcore fan base I suppose the live event certainly would you yeah. say, are there efforts being made to kind of educate the uninitiated like like yourself I was talking to a guy 
who uh, is one of the commentators who explained to me that there is something called online there is something called a noob stream noob being kind of you know online gaming slang for newbie Mm. so there are measures taken in that respect but in in terms of the live experience yeah as you say it's for people who've played the game and and know what's going on you know the the it's it's presented with some some clarity and some sensitivity in terms of you know what you want out of the experience but it wasn't for people like me it was for people who are are kind of interested in the game and and certainly one of the things that came across was that in the esports space your audience base really does come from your your player base yeah there, there's some interesting um interesting things to to discuss that will hopefully come out of it when i've yeah transcribed interviews and reviewed notes and all that kind of stuff mm. so what else has been going on this week what else has been going on well before that uh, of course we had the nba in london they were back the washington wizards edging out the new york knicks i was not there for for this particular game we did have guys there though and i hear that you know still uh, whenever the nba comes to london still struggling to replicate that real authentic nba experience that you might get in somewhere like new york or la or anywhere in north mm. america mm. which you'd expect to a certain extent it's a it's a kind of one-off hit and run mm. experience but that might all be changing mike i feel like that's what you were you were building towards discussing there exactly well it could be changing who knows there's always uh we'll, we'll have to wait and see but certainly one thing that uh came out of this year's event and the discussion around it and obviously adam silver the commissioner uh, giving his kind of state of the league address prior to the game uh, suggesting that the uh, the game could be relocating next year mm. to, to paris obviously uh, so he, he holds this press conference before the game every year and you'll have uh, journalists from all over europe and invariably the questions asked are you know, the Italian journalists will ask when when the game's coming to Italy. The German journalists will ask when it's coming to Germany, and the French journalists will ask when it's coming to 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 France. And uh, obviously, Paris being the obvious um, uh, obvious location to stage the game. So there's some talk that the the game could be heading there next year, Owen. Mm, there was, and I mean, I was um, at a roundtable with Mark Tatum, who is. Adam Silver's deputy commissioner, and with Ralph Rivera, who's come across from Discovery Eurosport to uh, become the NBA's head of EMEA. I think this was his first kind of proper public appearance. He's been there about two weeks. Yeah. And certainly in that discussion, um, there was a lot of conversation about games in Europe and the strategy in Europe. Paris was was pretty broadly discussed. I think the way that the NBA look at it, Paris or France is probably their best audience obviously it's a a big basketball country but also the kind of crossover with lifestyle uh, and urban culture and all that kind of thing Mm. is strongest in in France and particularly in Paris out of any um, European country so you know the the mix of the standard of basketball in France the standard of player that they've had come out of France in the past you think guys like Tony Parker the level of coverage and then also the fact that it's not just like it would be in in Germany where you're looking at kind of the the BBL or something. It's it's a very kind of NBA centric culture. Um, mm. Works very well for them. London has often been seen as kind of a hub for the rest of Europe. It's a, a trip that lots of people on the east coast of the US are used to making. Mm. Um, and then it's an obviously an English speaking country, but there is a, a political development happening in the next few months that may have. An impact on how certain cool. events are, uh, uh, take place, but yeah. also 
I think if they're going one game a season, then that's when they really have to look at whether they they start taking the game elsewhere. So what you know, Adam Silver was was a bit more direct in saying there's a decent chance that the London game moves to Paris. Uh, the Bercy Arena has has kind of been revamped and all that kind of stuff, which has has piqued the NBA's interest again. But the discussion with uh, Mark Tatum and, and Ralph Rivera was a bit kind of broader. They, you know, they were talking about ideas like, well, if we could make it happen, we'd like to have a week of games or a week of activities that might include a game in London and a game in Paris, mm. or might include a couple of games in one and one in the other or whatever it might be, and kind of really double down on that and make it slightly less of a, a kind of snatched yeah. moment. Um, you wonder if that would be, you know, would be achievable in the in, you know, anytime soon, given that uh, you know the sounding from from Silver is that you know the, the the kind of work and the resource that goes into just one London game is pretty extensive already, and and obviously obviously you've got the scheduling of of that and how that would work. It's um, an interesting. Well, one. I think I think the scheduling and the attempts to kind of build in more rest days into the calendar and all that kind of stuff is that's the biggest obstacle because if you take teams to London, obviously that has a knock-on effect and when you can schedule their next games when they get back to the US. Um, yeah. You also have the fact mm-hmm. that realistically, you're only ever going to have Eastern Conference teams and mostly teams based on that Eastern Seaboard who are going to make the trip and that affects, you know, interest in other teams potentially. Um, it affects the marketing mix. It means that you're then probably only using or you're probably using more West Coast teams than to go to China, for example, before the season starts. They might not want to do that every year with their players. They might want to do other things. It becomes difficult to kind of extend it too far. But, I mean, there's there's ambition to do that. The other thing there was a joke about during the discussion was that one of the first things Ralph Rivera asked about when, um, when he joined was whether he could have the All-Star game come to Europe. Um, which I think is is probably a few years off yet, but mm. you know they are thinking in these terms. How can we do things? How can we do things slightly differently and continue to build our presence in Europe? And a, a, another event that uh, that happened in recent days that we should probably t- talk about, Owen, across the Atlantic in uh, where was it in Brooklyn? The first UFC fight night on ESPN Plus mm. and. Uh, um i like no doubt yourself and many other people within the industry received a um self congratulatory email from espn well done for getting through that word thank you um hailing it a record-setting night owen yes i understand that 568,000 new subscribers signed up to the platform in anticipation of that fight yes, or that indeed. fight weekend that fight that yeah. card and over 525,000 on Saturday alone which is obviously a huge boost for ESPN which uh, ESPN plus the uh, new streaming service uh, launched what in April of last year they announced mm. in September that they had surpassed the kind of 1 1 million mark so obviously adding another 50% of that in in one day alone is is pretty remarkable um ESPN calling it the the largest event and subscription catalyst for ESPN uh, so far. So yeah, I think uh, you know the the UFC deal clearly have you know the the early signs are pretty good. And of. also looking at it from the other perspective, um, when I spoke to Lawrence Epstein towards the end of last year, 
Mm. One of the things he said about the move from Fox to ESPN was that, you know, the kind of the the potential that ESPN had as a a multi-channel offering, the fact that they could bake in some of their pay-per-view stuff, the fact that they obviously had ESPN Plus as a platform as well, meant that they could they could collaborate a little bit more on how they distributed things. Staying in the US or staying in North America, the NHL had its own big expansionist plans for a World Cup of hockey, which was kind of their own competition. We I remember we covered around the first one, you know, their plans for that. It was a competition that they were putting together with their players association, the NHLPA. And the next edition was scheduled for September 2020, but that's not going ahead, Mike. Can you tell us any more about that? Well, um, this is all kind of bundled into the the kind of early talks around the new CBA. Uh, I think the current the current agreement is in place for another three years, I believe. But there's an opt out clause for both sides coming up in September. Uh, so various kind of details need to be worked out before then. If if one one side or the other opts out, then then the the agreement would be up for renewal. Uh, I believe September of next year. Obviously. Uh, this doesn't bode all too well, not only for for international ice hockey fans, I suppose, in that uh, you know, as you say, this 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 kind of new event that was uh, uh, you know uh, a profit driver, I suppose, for the NHL and its, mm. and its players' union was seen as a kind of way to to kind of fill that gap between Olympics, which obviously the NHL isn't all that uh, um, uh, interested in these days. Um, uh, this was seen as a way to kind of um, enhance the the kind of international scene, uh, you know, best versus best action between you know the major um, ice hockey playing countries around the world. Uh, so the fact that it's been mixed uh, for 2020 is certainly not a good sign for that. But it also doesn't bode well for for uh, for the prospect of labour peace. I suppose mm. the the owners and and players kind of unable to agree on. On this, obviously, there's uh, there was a huge backlash certainly among players when the um, when the NHL failed to agree a deal with the IOC to for for, for NHL representation at Pyeongchang last year. So this could be a you know a sign of kind of things to come. Really, I, I think. What what did you make of the news, Owen? I mean, I'm not as familiar with it perhaps as as you are. At least this in, this latest development. Um, certainly, it was something that they had hoped to be that the players could take a bit of ownership of as well, or the NHLPA could take a bit of ownership of. So as you say, it will be a bit of a wrinkle in those upcoming mm. CBA discussions. Um, it would be interesting to see what happens with the other international tournaments that are already on the calendar and whether this opens up uh, more opportunities for NHL players to go and participate in those. Um, as you say, there was there was difficulty in, in agreeing anything and, and nothing formal was agreed for, for Pyeongchang. Um, it would probably make sense for the NHL if they could get some of their players on the ice in Beijing. Given the, the NHL's kind of focus on, on China in general, you would, you would yeah. like to think, uh, certainly the IOC would like to think that they would take that one a little more seriously than, and, and perhaps be willing to concede a bit more on that one than, than perhaps they did in, for Pyeongchang, um, or they were unwilling to do in Pyeongchang. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And then you wonder as well about the future of the the IIHF tournament, which is, is annual at the moment and obviously is 
not helpfully timed for the very, very best NHL players because it takes place more or less at the exact same time as the Stanley Cup. One to watch for sure. Uh, on the subject of ice hockey and the NHL, Sam Karp has a piece on the site, I believe, at the moment about the Las Vegas Golden Knights and their entry into the NHL, their kind of disruptive activities and fan community engagement stuff. And there's, you know, lots of lots of very interesting things in there. Mm. Speaking of athlete and federation dilemmas and discussions and friction, um, and we'll, we'll just go through a couple more of these points and then we'll head into part two with, uh, with Ted Leonsis from Monumental Sports and Entertainment and those aforementioned Washington Wizards. But FINA, the world's swimming governing body, has softened its stance, Mike, on uh, swimmers competing in the International Swimming League. I mean, this is this is almost swimming's Kerry Packer moment. You know, you have a, a governing body that's not always had the most comfortable relationship with its uh, with its athletes, particularly when it comes to money. And yeah, the ISL, this breakaway league, which aims to launch properly this year. Swimmers were going to be banned if they took part in this. Um, Some of them have said, well, Adam Peaty, most notable among them, have said, well, if you're going to ban me, you know, I've already got my Olympic medals and now I'd quite like to have a pension. Indeed. So, yeah, I mean, what's what's the latest on this? Yeah, I mean, what do you make of this, Aaron? I mean, the ISL obviously and their their leadership have come out, kind of welcomed this this U-turn, this decision. They've they've called it a kind of tacit uh, admission of guilt on the on the part of FINA. Uh, perhaps you know we can we can soften that slightly. I think it's more of a you know an acceptance of of reality and the and the situation they're in. Um, you know, um, obviously the ISL cancelled its um, its debut event in Turin uh, last month. FINA came out and had, they had said that the you know the, the launch of the competition kind of contravened its rules, um, and then kind of threatening to ban ban athletes. Obviously, then a, a huge uh, kind of well, you know certainly a, a noticeable backlash amongst swimmers, as mm. you said, uh, PT coming out voicing his disgruntlement. So yeah, I think it's uh, on the part of Fina. It's, it's got to be you know this acceptance that this is the the direction of travel that they can't simply kind of quash the emergence of these kind of uh, breakaway leagues or entities that have uh, you know are looking to provide earning opportunities for swimmers out there. And you know you can't you can't simply can't simply say no, absolutely not. Uh, you know we control this sport. It, you know it just doesn't doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, um, they have said though uh, that any record set at these kinds of events at the ISL or any other event that is non-sanctioned by FINA will not be not be recognised. So yeah, it's interesting. I think from FINA's point of view, they had some fairly rapidly dissipating leverage when you think that PT was one of what, a couple of dozen leading swimmers who were kind of beginning to side with the ISL on this. One of the other very notable names in that list was Katinka Hossu, uh, mm. multiple world and Olympic champion from Hungary, arguably the biggest star in the sport, certainly um, outside of, of, you know, some of the American swimmers. You know, from that perspective, you could see a climb down being, or a partial mm. climb down being um, on the cards. It's it's a little bit harder to read what the ISL is aiming for. Konstantin Grigorishin, who is the uh, Ukrainian billionaire who's backing 
the league has said that he wants to work in partnership with FINA and just for the ISL to kind of be part of the FINA calendar. Mm. Um, but he's also said that he thinks that the age of the global governing body is over, which suggests slightly more ambitious and more acquisitive strategy, maybe lying a little bit further down the line. Who knows? Who knows? Okay, well, I think that will do it for part one. I'm sure we'll hear more on all of those stories in the weeks and months ahead from other outlets, but also from Sports Pro. Um, join us again in part two. We are going to be hearing from Ted Leonsis, the owner of Monumental Sports and Entertainment. Welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Uh, Mike, just quickly before we go on to our guest, what is on the Sports Pro website this week? Well, we've got a, uh, you know, stats insights uh, section, as always, Owen. We've been speaking to the chief executive of MyKuju, Pedro Presa. He heads up this new streaming service for niche sports uh, based in Amsterdam. He's got a lot to say on why rights holders need to go for owned OTT rather than focusing too heavily on social media. And speaking of social media, Owen, we always have a uh, also have a piece written by yourself on Snapchat sports content strategy. What What is that all about? Uh, yes, I did. I spoke to uh, Juan David Barrero, who's the senior partnerships manager at Snapchat. Obviously, they've had their fair share of excitement down the years. They've also had their fair share of, of challenges in terms of their user base and um, share price and all that kind of thing. They're trying to mature as a, a, a media platform. They've brought in a lot of partners on the content side, both from the publishing world, people like um, Sky and some of the big magazine publishers and all that kind of thing, and increasingly from the world of sport. And they're bringing in uh, a number of football clubs, Manchester City are in there, Real Madrid, Tottenham, um, and a few others. They've also been doing stuff around major events with um, some of their messaging, uh, bells and whistles, yeah. the Bitmoji avatars, and some of the AR stuff that they're capable of doing. So you can find out more about that by heading to the site um, and reading. Yeah, and for any any listeners out there that haven't read this piece, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's it's there's some fascinating stuff in there do go and check it out right speaking of the intersection between sport and technology and new media and all of that stuff sports pro live is back it's in london at a soon to be confirmed venue on the 30th of april and 1st of may 2019 i can tell you that the venue is is quite an exciting one once again it's going to be where technology meets the sports business uh, we have a few speakers confirmed already. Paul Samuels from AEG Europe. Christian Fuchs, he's got a Premier League winner's medal and he's mm. also got an esports business that he's going to tell us about. Uh, Hal robson Carnu, former Premier League footballer, scorer of one of the most famous goals mm. in Welsh international history at Euro 2016. He has become heavily involved in blockchain, so he's going to tell us about that. We've got some more speakers who are not former professional athletes, but we have one more who is, and that's Steve Elworthy, the uh, former South Africa international cricketer, who is the managing director of the Cricket World Cup in England and Wales this summer. Bruna Zanin-Juresic, speaking of 
social networks and their content. She is involved with global content partnerships for sports at Twitter. More besides, many more to be confirmed in the weeks ahead. Uh, if you want to find out a little bit more about that event and how you can join us, head to www.sportsprolive.com and you will find all the information you need to there. Okay, so uh, last week, as we discussed in the first part of the programme, we welcomed the NBA to London, Washington Wizards and the New York Knicks. I was lucky enough to catch up with, uh, along with some colleagues from iSport Connect, Sport Cal and Forbes on a uh, media roundtable with Ted Leonsis, who is the owner of Monumental Sports and Entertainment. Uh, they own the Washington Wizards. They also own the Washington Capitals in the NHL, the Washington Mystics in the WNBA, uh, and a digital media company called Mike. I believe that is called Monumental Sports Network. Stands to reason. So we spoke to Ted, or to be more accurate, Ted spoke to us. I think we had about 45 minutes with him, and we maybe asked a question each, and there were four of us. But uh, he was... Uh, he was fascinating on a range of topics, but we will pick up on the matter of the NBA's media strategy. Let's take a listen. I think what you're seeing is, again, if you're a platform company, you really aren't as um, focused on how you'll distribute. You're really more interested in owning the data understanding who the customer is. It's, it's been ironic that our great partners, I was chairman of the NBA Media Committee, um, they're some of the most uh, gifted, talented programmers, some of the most valuable companies in the world, but they're a step removed from the customer. Um, it's why when you talk to these executives, you say, well, who's watching the games? and they'll talk in the aggregate. They'll say, well, men, this age group and the like, and, and we're such a big data-driven marketing company. We know who our customers are, we know what their birthdays are, we know how to text them, we know what the social <laughs> graph of each of them are. And so we're becoming really, really good partners with the more traditional media companies, the cable companies. And they have come to value us, I think now appropriately, um, mostly because in this new digital world, we're still the convener of live programming. And there is nothing anymore on standard, if you will, television or cable that people will want an appointment view. So for an advertiser and a marketer, it's very difficult to have that diffusion of interest where, you know, all day today I've been seeing promotions. It's 8 o'clock. The game's at 8 o'clock. And, and that's mm -hmm. still very, very powerful. Each of the partners, though, has said we can't be reliant on the cable company um, we need to now start to look at how do we go direct? How do we get uh, a customer relationship 
And so um, yesterday, big announcements with NBC and with Comcast that they need to build a um, Disney-like, ESPN-like streaming network. And so for any of those direct-to-consumer, the value of having sports programming will become incredibly important. Um, that's why I think I'm bullish on the WNBA, I'm bullish on um, NBA 2K. They announced yesterday a big renewal and deal with Take-Two. Um, I think that was very wise um, that as a worldwide enterprise, um, it not only helps us to market the game, but it's not a wild concept to think that um, 10 years from now, most people around the world, there'll be 8 billion people, um, there'll be um, 400 million in North America, so the majority of the people outside of North America will be introduced to basketball and the NBA via some kind of eSport or, or video game. And this, um, this advent of eSport, big data, I'd say the transparency of the stats and data that we're seeing is going to become so valuable for next generation like gaming. Um, while I was here, I just walked in doing some consumer shopping at a couple of the betting parlors, of which I, I'm convinced there are more William Hills here than there are <laughs> Starbucks. In. But in the arena, we're going to see um, new kinds of programming the fidelity of the bandwidth that you can give to your consumer in the arena, which you know, a lot of people years ago would be concerned, and they were t talking about the NFL, why do you want to go to an arena? And you can watch it on television, have the big screen. And what I'm seeing, or what I believe, is that the big data, the the um, the sense of community that you have, but having access to real time, I'm seeing it, I can um, gamify what I want to do, eventually I can be uh, gambling and betting, um, is going to be very, very important. And right now we have time delays on television. And, and that's a whole new um, thing we're all going to have to deal with. Um, if you're in a real-time environment, getting into the arena, having access, we might see one day parts of the arena have higher bandwidth sure. than other parts of the, the building. And, and so I, I think that we are, in the NBA, really well positioned to take advantage of it. I'd also say that um, I own a hockey team too in the NHL, similar in that the games are built on speed and because they're indoors we can leverage the infrastructure. Um, I'm going later today to Chelsea uh, just to meet some people there and watch a practice and it's outdoors. 
It's raining. It's it's not the best environment to create a bespoke interactive, you know, high speed cameras following the ball, being able to upload the video in real time. And so I, I think indoor sports games that are fast generating a lot of data that they will uh, become even more valuable as time goes on. Um, I mean, there's been some changes to the delivery of the NBA or there are beginning to be some changes to the delivery of the NBA broadcast product, the most eye-catching of which is the microtransactions that have been trialled over the last year or so. Is that a sign of that broadcast product moving out of the linear appointment of view uh, environment that you talked about into something where it's always on and you're kind of you're trying to just draw people in at whatever point suits them well I think we're still in a age of um, we have to protect enhance respect our existing partnerships and maybe sometimes not only partner with them but lead them into um, next generation consumer habits and applications. It's very, very hard. Um, there's an innovator's dilemma and also a business case dilemma that when you're a big, big company, a public company, and you have a business model, um, we are dependent on them. We want to help them. Yet we see by each generation the change in consumption behavior. and. And globally, we have great, great opportunity because we have less partnerships. And, and so, you know, we've all envisioned why isn't there a um, NBA iTunes store in the cloud where you could watch and we could create our own bundle one day where you could watch NBA and WNBA, you could follow players, you could have different camera angles. Um, I think the, the mobile first notion, um, and, and again, that comes with experimentation, and many times you have to do that in, I'd say, smaller secondary leagues. I think the G League and the WNBA are going to become increasingly important to try new things. And then if they work, you bring them up all the way through the platform. Um, just as a an example with us in Washington, I, I bought... A cup. I, I own two arena football league teams, and they're not big businesses. But we've we've said internally we will make this our laboratory and try lots of different things. And so, Washington D.C. is the most millennial rich city in our country, we have the largest population of people 30 years of age or younger moving into our city. And so there, um, and I, I can, in my own household, my, my son is 30 and my daughter's 26 years old. And when my son went to college, uh, we checked him into his dorm 
and I bought him a large television and he had an Xbox and he was big man on campus. And he said, Dad, I'm, I'm not going to watch the 76ers or the, the Flyers and he had Slingbox. And that was his configuration. And when he graduated, he took that muscle memory with him and he has an apartment in DC and he put the TV up, he called his cable company, he, he replicated that, just as we all do. Uh, my daughter then went to Georgetown and I said, well, I'll buy you a television too. And she said, I don't want a television, I have my iPad. And I said, we'll, um, we'll get you cable connectivity. Well, school didn't have cable connectivity, it was wireless. And so she then spent time traveling and go, coming to school in Ireland for her junior year. And then she moved here. She gets a furnished apartment with a television in the apartment, which she's never turned on. She hasn't subscribed to a newspaper or magazine. No one knows she's here. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the delta between those two uh, is dramatic. So with, with our Arena Football League team, we said, well, how do we replicate the best years of a young person's life in the dorm? And how do we present the game differently? So it's really interesting. Our best-selling seats, the seats that have sold out, are standing room only in the end zones with all the beer and food you can eat. It's a dorm room. It's not sitting in the, on the 50 yard line. It's standing with your friends. And we offer multiple camera angles through a partnership with a company called Kiswe, K-I-S-W-E. And we made an investment in this company and they do video stitching and, and real time, you can look at multiple camera angles and the speed with which that comes up is really, really fast. And we say, which, which view do you want? Do you want um, the view that we have all become comfortable with, uh, the 50 yard line or center court, or the in-game experience because you've grown up playing video games. You've played a lot more video games than you've attended a game. And so in a video game, you're the quarterback or the running back or you're playing defense. And so those two little insights of pricing and marketing the tickets differently. Who would have thought standing room only with beer is more attractive than... And and so I think we'll see the WNBA and the G League being fertile grounds to try things. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. I've owned the teams now for a long time, and I was young, 
and I'm determined to stay young. And I think the way you do that is you keep your curiosity high. And I, I've just learned that if you um, if you read a lot and you talk to lots of people, and I mean, it's the reason I'm going to Chelsea today. Um, relegation, holy mackerel. <laughs> so, thank God we don't have that in the NBA. <laughs> So, so the, the one thing that, that I have seen is that the NBA has younger, very progressive owners who have come from other industries, and you see opportunity. Um, Steve Ballmer is a, a genius, too, and you know, he paid $2 billion for a team, and said, I think it was undervalued. And that's what I've always believed because if you've grown up in the tech business, and I think we were first in Washington to say, I mean, I grew up at America Online, and I said, oh, I understand this business. It's subscriptions and it's software as service. And so I focused on what percentage of our revenues is reoccurring. And if you're a software as service business, um, you have to be growing your top line and you have to have renewals in the 80 to 85% range. And those companies are valued at 8 to 12 times top line. And when I bought into the leagues, it was three to four times revenues. That was always the model. And so I said, well, what percentage of our revenues are reoccurring? And you start to look and say, well, I'm chairman of the media committee and Adam and Bill Koenig did unbelievable work there and we signed a long-term deal with step-ups with two of the biggest, most important companies in the world, uh, Disney, ESPN, and Time Warner and Turner. He said, well, th those balance sheets are strong. They're going to pay us. And, and then we did a local deal with Comcast NBC. So you go, geez, those two media deals are like software as service where you can predict what they'll be. And your suites are all on five-year deals and your naming rights are on 10-year deals and um, my season tickets renew it. You know, the caps have sold my capitals. NHL team have sold out for 11 years in a row. I think we're at like 450 games or so. Um, sold out and we renew with like 95%. No one wants to not renew uh, because there's a big secondary demand and so if you can't go to games you just sell them at a profit. And, and so, so I think coming from a business background you could look at the business when, when I first saw well, this is like a SaaS business. Mm -hmm. It's like it's a hockey team. It's a basketball team. It's like it's not. And, and then the venues um, 
at, at first, most sports teams were owners, were real estate people. They, mm -hmm. they were looking for something to fill the seats. And, and then that fell out of favor a little bit. And now it's back in favor, right? It's uh, Amazon opening bookstores. And so our buildings have become incredibly important. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a really firm believer that major metro areas, you know, it's up, up till 50 years ago, um, less than 50% of the population lived in the big cities. And now, and London is the absolute model. Um, I've, I've um, studied, we were bidding for the 2024 Olympics. I spent tons of time here just understanding the demography and the political climate and the economics of what happened here. And London is not the sleepy little London town anymore. It's 100, 200 miles long. It's 12 million people. And there's this theory of super cities that's emerged that around the globe there'll be 10 super cities. Uh, and, and in North America, there'll be four of them, New York, which is New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Um, LA, which goes from Orange County all the way down to San Diego. Um, Washington, D.C., which is Maryland and Virginia and, um, and D.C. and probably Delaware. I've joked with the governor of Pennsylvania about Philadelphia because they're going to be the jump ball or they're going to be part of the New York um, or DC <laughs> world. Um, but these these big mega... What's your fourth one? What's your fourth one? Fourth one is Chicago. All right. um, okay. These big 10 million plus um, they, they, 10 million media markets, 10 million people media markets, they share several things. Um, they have five plus great research universities, they have three international airports, they have uh, a workforce that's 30 years of age and younger, um, and, and green space has become really, really important in those communities, and sports teams. And within the sports teams, the buildings that we play in, have become iconic symbols of what the the city is all about. And so all of a sudden now, like I, I know the importance of Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C. Um, Three million people come into the city. We're one of the largest taxpayers. We've turned around that part of the community. You know, when the Washington Capitals were playing on the road in the playoffs last year. 20,000 people would come into the stadium and watch the game on television, and 50,000 would be outside watching the game on television. We, you know, we united the community around our building. And so real estate is 
vital. And, um, you know, I marvel what I'm so interested about London is how many soccer leagues there are, how many teams there are in each of the leagues. Um, you know, the notion that you can support these big mega stadiums so close to one another is really uh, of, of great interest. And um, so, so to you know, conclude on, on the question, I think if, you, if you're a business person who's been in a creative, fast-moving business, and you know the, the tech business, I, I graduated from college in 77 and went to work for a computer company. Um, opened its office here, it was called the Wang Laboratories, it was a word processing company. And then AOL um, really got America online and we got London online, we got England online. Uh, we were the first real upscale internet company um, here. Right. A lot of people had AOL as their yeah. email uh, yeah. address. Um, so, so um, you know, I just believe that if you're first in and you're in this fast-moving environment that when you come into sports, you come into the NBA, you just say, this is an unbelievably sound business and its product is perfect. Okay, that'll do it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thanks to Ted Leonsis for sitting down with me and some of my media peers last week. Thanks to you, Mike Long. No, thanks to you, Owen Connolly. Thank you. Oh, very kind. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.